Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast. I'm Eric Olander. And as always, I'm joined by Kobus van Staden of Witts University in Johannesburg, South Africa. A very good afternoon to you, Kobus. Good afternoon. Kobus, today we're going to be talking about the much-hyped, much-ballyhooed industrialization of Africa done primarily by the Chinese. And in part, this is coming about because China's economy right now is undergoing a profound change. And the Chinese will have you think, and again, I say that with a little bit of skepticism because a lot of us don't really understand what's actually going on within the Chinese economy. But if you believe the narratives, the Chinese are undergoing a very, very profound shift transforming their economy from a manufacturing industrial economy that is going to become a services economy. And that means there are going to be 85 million manufacturing jobs that will now kind of be spread apart around the world. Now the the issue is where those jobs are going to go. Um, so a lot of a lot of independent economic um, analysts are saying the most natural place for these jobs to go is Southeast Asia. Um, a lot of them have been going to Southeast Asia already. I mean, a lot of the of the clothing that people wear in the West now gets made in Southeast Asia and also in places like Bangladesh. So that's been happening already. But the Chinese government, in its you know kind of like its PR in Africa and its negotiations with African governments tend to talk a lot about Chinese manufacturing jobs actually moving to Africa and that African African countries have to set up infrastructure and get themselves ready for this influx of big jobs. And to be fair, the Chinese have invested significantly in, in, in industrialization and manufacturing in Africa, most notably in South Africa. In Durban, there's new power, there's new uh, car plants that are coming, there's electronics, high senses there, uh, first uh, Beijing Automotive Motive Works is there. Uh, any number of big Chinese companies have invested in South Africa. But really, the showcase is Ethiopia. And in Ethiopia, there's one factory above all others that really stands apart and really represents, in many cases, the ideal for what would happen if much of the manufacturing from China did move to Africa, and that is the Huajin Shoe Factory. Now, Huajin is one of the largest shoe manufacturing companies in the world. They produce tens of millions of pairs of shoes, mostly out of China, for many of the world's leading manufacturers and brands, uh, Nike, Gap, Guess, you name it, they're producing them for it. And that's a, they're a contract manufacturer. Well, they've created this factory that opened in January 2012 that's just outside of Addis Ababa. It has about 600 people, and and it produces tens of thousands of jobs. Uh, I'm sorry, shoes. But in the goal is that by 2020, they want to produce 30,000 jobs. And let's get a kind of a sense of what this is, in part because, as Kobus mentioned, this factory has come to represent a lot for the Chinese government. And it's very much a feature of Chinese propaganda about the future of their industrial policy in Africa. And CCTV, if you go onto YouTube, you'll find so many clips about this Huajin Shoe Factory, and they really promote it. Let's take a look at what CCTV says about the Huajin Shoe Factory. Each day, these workers can produce around 7,500 pairs of shoes at the Huajin International Show City in Ethiopia. All these women's shows are exported to U.S. and European markets under brand names including Guess, Mark Fisher, and Nye West. Masarit Jerma has been working in the stitching department for over two and a half years. She is satisfied with her work. Day by day, I have changed something. And I change from my position, even my salary, everything is changed day by day. So I still I feel happy. That's why I still work in Huajin. Even to environmentalists, I like to work in Huajin company. 
Huajing is one of the biggest manufacturers of women's show in China. It employs 4,000 workers in Ethiopia. So I spoke with Helen Hai, who set up the Huajin's shoe factory in Ethiopia. And she has since become this kind of celebrity of, of Chinese development um where she she does a lot of talks around the world about about you know where she uses the Huajin shoe factory as an example of how chinese development could work in africa and she also works as a as a un ambassador um so she yeah she's a, she's a she's very prominent she used to work in lots of very high high profile finance jobs in you know different parts of the west and she now essentially represents chinese investment in this kind of way so i i started off the interview by asking her why she chose Ethiopia? Uh, I came to Ethiopia in 2011 to set up a shoe factory. It took us three months from design to investment to actual production to for export. In the following six months, we doubled the export revenue in Ethiopia in the shoe sector. By the end of year one, we recruited 2,000 local workers. By the end of year two, we recruited 4,000 local workers. A lot of people ask me the same question you just asked is, why did I pick Ethiopia? The answer is, uh, we did not pick Ethiopia. It was Ethiopia who picked us. The story started in March 2011, when the late Prime Minister of Ethiopia, His Excellency Prime Minister Meles, had a meeting with Professor Justin Lin, the chief economist of the World Bank. And he asked for Justin's advice in terms of poverty reduction and economic transformation. Justin advised him three things. Number one, he said, job creation, it is the key for poverty reduction. Secondly, he said, the fundamental secret for China's uh, economic transformation in 1980s, and also the Asia for Tigers in 1960s, because they capture the window of opportunity during industrialization relocation, which enabled those countries created millions of jobs that gave them the opportunity for the jump start in their economic transformation. I can share with you some numbers about that to, to, for you to further understand this. The GDP per capita in China back in 1978 is only 154 US dollars, which is less than one third of the sub Sahara African countries. The economic uh, transformation in China has been a miracle in the past 35 years, on average, 9.8% growth in the GDP per annum. Uh, also, most importantly, 600 million people has been lifted out of the international poverty line in China. According to World Bank, the number of the people living under the international poverty line uh, in the world from 1960 up to today didn't decline if we exclude the 680 million people in China, which means China made the biggest contribution in terms of poverty reduction. But as a result of that, uh, the GDP per capita in China in 2014 is 7,500. And by 2020, China is going to double that. That means 
China is moving from a labor-intensive economy to a more capital-intensive economy. That means all those labor-intensive jobs have to be relocated out of China, uh, and exactly like what happened in Japan in the 1960s, and that's what happened in Hong Kong and Taiwan in the 1980s. But this round of relocation is very complicated. Because when Japan was relocating, they only relocate 9.7 million jobs. When Korea was relocating, they were only relocating 2.3 million. This time, China is about to relocate 85 million jobs. The the normal uh, geographic location uh, are able to take those jobs are Southeast Asia. But the problem is, Southeast Asia does not have enough population to absorb all those 85 million jobs. This is why there is this golden opportunity for Africa, a continent with more than 1.2 billion population. Most of them are young people desperate for jobs. So this is the theory Justin told, uh, advised the Prime Minister of Ethiopia. Well, you know, kind of, sorry to interrupt you, but but it, it, you know, this is... I think from an African perspective, I can see how incredibly attractive this is. You know, obviously, there's all of these jobs. Africa has so many young people whose, whose um, talents frequently don't really get, get used to their fullest extent. But at the same time, when one sets up a factory, you know, kind of there's all these pragmatic things that you have to keep in mind. Um, things like infrastructure and, you know, kind of um, labor stability and all of these kind of things. Was there anything in Ethiopia that made it more attractive than, say, Uganda, or or was it simply the fact that that Ethiopia made that first step and and, and spoke spoke with the with the Chinese government? Yeah, if you let me to finish what I I wanted to say, I just said the two things: the prime the Justin advised the late prime minister, so he immediately got the idea, he said he wanted to do this, and he asked Justin how he can make this happen. So the last thing Justin advised him is, he said, uh, you need to create a quick success, because a quick success will bring uh, inspiration, experience, confidence, leadership to Ethiopia, and then to the rest of the continent. That is how the story started. The late prime minister of Ethiopia went to China personally, invited a group of investors, and we were among them. That is how we came to Ethiopia. So the answer is, we did not pick Ethiopia. It was Ethiopia who picked us. And so when, but at the same time, I mean, these investors still need to say yes, right? I mean, they can be asked by Ethiopia to invest, but it still needs to make sense for them as investors. Um, So was, you know, what made Ethiopia particularly attractive? You, You know, first, I think leadership is very important from what I just tried to explain to you. You know, like out of 54 African countries, Ethiopia the the leader is the only one who actually went to China, I mean, personally, to promote their country to invest, invite investors. But this is not just to invite all the investors, to invite investors, actually, who can make an impact in development. So this is very important, actually, because I think uh, a lot of African countries, finding the right path of the development is the key. And this is the number one thing, leadership, which is really important. 
And secondly, I think I want to is to say sustainable commitment is also very important. When I first came to Ethiopia, I met the Prime Minister uh, and the Minister of the country,、um, and then they were telling me, "Helen, you are、uh, exporting hundred percent, so all your raw material will be tax free." But in reality, it is not the Prime Minister or Minister. Sitting at the port, clearing my goods, which is the same thing applied to all the African countries. Why come to practical? There also, with a pioneer, you face a lot of issues. So I face the problem. I have the brush to brush the shoes. So they say they have the brush to brush the shoes. They say that in the customer, they say this is the brush to brush human teeth. It need to be taxed. And I have a machine to make a hole in the leather shoes. They say this looks like a gun. It is an illegal weapon. You cannot even get it cleared into the country. So what I have to do? I have to personally meet the director general of the tax, and understood he has six deputy director generals, and I want to meet each of them. And then when I go to meet each of them, I get the names and telephone numbers. Of the next two layer manager below each of them, and then I invited all of them into a meeting room. I prepared a presentation telling them who am I, why I came to the country, what I've done, what am I going to do. Most importantly, the problem I've encountered, and then afterwards inviting all of them to the production floor, seeing from the beginning to the end, and then everything become rosy. At this moment, you probably ask me why would I take such kind of effort to make this happen in Ethiopia. I give you two things which touch my heart for me also to pick Ethiopia. The first time I came to Ethiopia, I went on to a rural trip with the ministers of the country, and I saw some children that suffering from hunger. So on behalf of the company. I wrote a check of one hundred thousand U.S. dollars. I gave it to the minister. I said, "Please use this money to buy some food for those poor children." You know what happened? The minister looked at the check, and then he returned it back to me. He said, "Helen, I don't want fish from you. I want you to teach us how to catch the fish. Please use this money." To buy some machines to my country to teach my people how to produce. I mean, it's common in Africa. There's a lot of problems, but then I work quite closely with the Minister of Industrial. He has a very busy schedule the next day. But if I call him ten o'clock in the evening, he would meet me seven o'clock in his office. So as an investor, yes, there are problems. But then, if the minister willing to come to the office. Early than the cleaner, trying to understand your problem and willing to hold your hand to trying to solve the problem together with you. I think that means a lot. Yeah, it certainly does. I mean, I, I'm you know listening to you. I'm struck by how how closely. Business on the one hand and development on the other hand are linked together in 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 your approach. That you know you're really thinking about business and development at the same time.、Um, do you think that is a way that most business people think when they when they invest in Africa? Of course not. First of all, I think private sector they didn't come to Africa to do aid. 
they come to Africa to do business. But some of the business will make a development impact. And then this is actually going back to the first topic we discussed about leadership. Leadership need to understand during their development path, what kind of business they need to attract, which can make a much bigger development impact. And that is why they need to focus to support those kind of sectors. One of the the interesting you know, kind of issues that comes up when, in, in your example, what you raised before about um, using, you know, East Asia, the Asian tigers, and then China as um, as a, a kind of a example of development is in all of those countries, these um, big factories were frequently supported by lots and lots of smaller companies who made components or provided smaller services. Um, you know, all of these, all of these supply chains that were um, that were that, that employed a whole lot of other people and and helped to lift all of these people out of poverty. Um, do you see that kind of system where a big factory is? is Applied by lots of smaller factories. Do you see that developing in, in a place like Ethiopia? So first of all, I think um, you have to understand, uh, you know, in order to make the development sustainable, there has to be a sustainable business reason behind that. If you want to use private sector to support development, you have to, so that private sector for their investment, there has to be a sustainable business reason. So I'm talking about is the light manufacturing, and then uh, the, as a development path, and then I think this is uh, which I use the chi- China. Actually, uh, I give you another. I share with you some figure first, and then I will explain to you. Um, f- from 1950 up to 2008, in the world. There are 200 developing economies. There are only two economies jumped from lower income to higher income. And then that is Japan and Taiwan. And China is very likely to become the third one to jump from the lower income to higher income. And then out of those 200 economies, there are only 13 economies moved from middle income to higher income. And out of those 13 economies, there are eight economies actually in Europe, which actually they are very close uh, with the uh, high income country. So the original gap of the development was very small. And the other five countries, they are the Asian four tigers. Uh, This is why, first of all, I think if you look at the the, the development path, that means unless you suddenly discover a lot of oil, uh, gold, or natural resources, industrialization is the only way for you to become an OECD country. So this is the number one I want to argue. Number two, going back to, to, to refine this, and then which is talking about the big factory and small factories. In order to attract uh, FDI into your country and how to make industrialization happen, how, how how to actually get into the global value chain? This is a very important question. Do you start from the capital incentive or do you start from the labor intensive or how, how, how does where start? If you look at the, the successful countries, they always started 
taking the advantage actually of the competitive labor, which they started from the labor intensive. This is how China did it, how Korea, Taiwan, Hong Kong, how they did it to make this happen. And then in order to make this labor intensive work, you have to be able to create enough scale, which is to attract a big factory in. And then once the big factory coming in, and then you can actually, they will empower more small factories to come in and started to build along the supply chain. And that's then you started creating a cluster and then to make it competitive. Yeah, no, I can see this. It's very interesting to listen to the to the different phases. Um, one, of, one of the one of the other kind of issues, of course, in in the growth of um, of China, is that China also had such a massive um, presented such a massive market. Um, in in the case of Ethiopia, do you foresee that 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 Africa itself could become a, a, an important market for Ethiopian manufacture, or is or are they mostly focusing on the Middle East and on Europe? I think. Uh if you want big scale job creation, the market definitely have to be export. Why? The whole Africa today is only has 2% of the global GDP. So how much you can, and then uh, Ethiopia is only a proportion, small proportion of the whole 50, uh, of the, of one of the 54 African countries. So the market is very small. But then if you look at Europe and US, each of them actually has more than 20% global GDP. So you have to sell to a market which actually has a huge amount of purchasing power and that it can actually to nurture the production into much bigger scale. Uh, as a result of that, huge amount of job creation. Um, you know, kind of it's... it's, it's you know, to to go back uh, for a moment to um, to the the point that you raised regarding the the need to move um, eighty five million jobs from China to to other parts of the world. Um, there's been a lot of a lot of discussion about these jobs moving to Africa, and um, you know, kind of except for the your big factory and some uh, you know um, factories other factories in Ethiopia and some in um, in South Africa, we haven't really seen. That many um, or such a very high speed of of Chinese jobs moving to Africa. What do you think are some of the barriers to moving Chinese jobs to Africa? Uh, actually, number one, I don't uh, agree with what you just said. Uh, those are the only one. So actually, I set up the shoe factory from two thousand eleven, and then I. In year 2013, I'm being asked by the government of Ethiopia to help them to working on investment promotion, working on the first government-owned industrial zone called the Bole Lamin. There are 22 factory units. Only eight of them are built. 14 of them are still on the plan. With less than three months working together with the Ministry of Industrial, we leased out all the 22 factory units to international manufacturers from Indian, Turkey, Bangladesh, uh, 
Taiwan, China, all over the world. So actually, there's a big investment has already come into Ethiopia already, and now Ethiopia government is also building more industrial zones. Back in 2013, because the su- success in uh, Bolilaming Phase One, World Bank committed to give 250 million U.S. dollars. First time in their history to support the second phase of industrialization in Ethiopia, and now in Avasa uh, uh, and also uh, other uh, regions, government is all building industrial zone. I've, I've been working quite closely with the government to attract other big investors uh, coming in. So, for example, the world largest uh, linen uh, producer. Has already committed to invest the forty million U.S. dollars in Ethiopia, and they're building their factory right now. And then H and M are relocating a big amount of orders to be produced in Ethiopia.、Uh, so there's a lot of things happening in Ethiopia, and not only Ethiopia. Ethiopia's success has had a snowboarding effect in the African continent. So back in 2014, I'm being approached by the President of Rwanda and President of Senegal to ask me to do the same thing. So last year I set up the first garment factory in Rwanda called CNH, and then、uh, we immediately created several hundred jobs. Rwanda is a small landlocked country, but through this factory we are taking cottons from Burundi, we are taking textiles from Uganda, and then we are making garments to export to the U.S. So industrialization made Rwanda from a small landlocked country to a land-connected country, and then also in Senegal last year the government、uh, has already uh, uh, working with Chinese investors and then constructed the first industrial zone. And this year the first industrial zone will be complete, and I'm confident thousands of jobs will be created later this year in Senegal, and also. Uh, I'm also now working since last year with the president of Ghana, president of Ivory Coast, and also this year I'm going to Nigeria、uh, in two weeks' time. So actually, also on industrialization. So actually, I would say there has been an industrialization movement started already in the continent, but maybe the media didn't, you know, like cover that much yet. But as we know, I mean, if we I mean the media. I mean, what's the mainstream stories about Africa in the mainstream media? War, disease, corruption, safari. That's the mainstream. I mean, there has been. I would say there is a big information asymmetry about the real Africa in the mainstream media. It's very true. I I completely agree.、Um, you know, my my work、um, is on media. My academic work is on media, and I completely agree that there's this very set ideas about what Africa is, especially in the Western media.、Um, in you know, kind of in. So you've been. It's it's really inspiring to hear how you work with so many different governments.、Um, when you speak with with these government leaders, like what advice do you give them to make the investment climate in their country better? Like where should they where should they Focus the energies to draw more investors in. So first of all, I think it's very important to understand, as I said, what's the right model of development. I think ideas is very important because if you look at China and India, back in nineteen seventy eight, 
The GDP in China is 154 U.S. dollars. India is 200 U.S. dollars, which is India and the GDP is higher. But today, the GDP per capita in China compared with India, China is five times than India. What actually made two countries develop so differently? The development model China has pursued the industrialization-based development model, but India has been pursuing a service-based development model. So I think first, for African countries, finding the right model of the development is very important. That's number one. Number two, once they identify the right model of development, they need to understand what's their comparative advantage in order to make that the FDI to coming in. So for example, like in Ethiopia, competitive labor and also the、uh, competitive utility cost. The willingness of the government to want to attract investing in those are the comparative advantage, and government have to work on that and attract the right sector to invest in. And then in Senegal's case, because the geographic location in Senegal is a very good advantage, because it only takes seven days, you know, on the sea to Europe and also U.S. That allows Senegal to do a lot of in fashion we call fast fashion clothes. So this each country you have to identify. What's your comparative advantage, and then to select the sector which can come to、uh, which can invest in, and then then is the next the third、uh, steps I would say is to create a quick successful examples because then this provide people's confidence, and then the next step once the successful example is done is to quickly to scale it up to replicate quickly. Yeah, it's very interesting. And then finally,、um, what advice would you give to to in, from drawing from your own experience to investors who are going into Africa? Like, what should they look out for? What and how can they solve some of these problems that you mentioned before? Some stuff that can't get imported, or with unexpected tax problems, or like like how should they solve those kind of problems? I think actually、um, to have an open-minded government. Willing to work closely with the investor at the beginning, trying to understand what's their issues. So there is a very famous Chinese quote from our leader. We say development is also like crossing the river by passing by by touching the stones. You have to really, you know, like work closely and trying to always adjust yourself to the right direction. You know, talking about I could give you, uh, my my my. Uh, one example which I would see the Western perspective and the Chinese perspective about entrepreneurship. I spent twelve years in Europe before I returned to China. But if you ask me to compare the European entrepreneurship and the Chinese entrepreneurship, I would say the following: If you have a tiger in front of you, the European entrepreneurship will teach you. Please get your laptop. And then study carefully the characteristic of the tiger, and then you discuss with your colleagues how are you going to conquer the tiger. But the problem is, when you finish all the discussion, all those studies, the tiger might be gone. Chinese entrepreneurship is very different. If they have a tiger in front of them, they jump 
on top of the tiger and they ride it. <laughs> and now I think it's up to African leaders and also people to figure out what's the right model for them and what's the right model for their entrepreneurship. That's a fantastic, fantastic image. <laughs> That's wonderful. Um, thank, thank you so much for joining us. It's fantastic to speak with you. Um, when people want to follow what you what you're busy with and what you what you're working on, are you, do you have a presence on any kind of social media? Yeah, uh, you know, if they because I'm the goodwill ambassador for Unido, so actually people go to Unido's website. And then go to the Goodwill Ambassador page. They can find uh, my information down there. Uh, yeah. That's fantastic. Thank you so much for joining us. It was wonderful to speak with you. Kobus, that was a fascinating interview. And in so many ways, I feel like Helen High really embodies this worldview that is so distinct from what we're used to in Africa, in part because it's distinctly not Western. You know, the story that she recounted of handing back the $100,000 check to the minister and the minister saying, Helen, I don't want fish from you. I want you to teach me how to catch the fish, buy production equipment so that our people can get jobs. And yet you still see very much with the West, which is, you know, touting massive aid programs, you know, how much the Clinton Foundation or the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation is giving. Even corporations are kind of promoting their corporate social responsibility as a branding mechanism in Africa. And it's so different than the Chinese way, which is this kind of nuts and bolts very practical, very much results-oriented type of business. I'm not suggesting that one is necessarily better than the other, but I do think it's important to highlight the difference. Well, but I also wonder whether that difference is, you know, remains as as kind of stark as it was in a time like 2012, because Chinese companies have, been, have really started jumping on that corporate social responsibility train. Um, you know, kind of, and, and my, my feeling is that in that the the Chinese are moving in a more Western direction, maybe more particularly in the mediation rather than necessarily the investment itself. But and at the same time, yeah, you know, kind of like it, it, you know, at the same time, we're seeing Chinese investors being a little bit more wary of Africa. So, you know, Helen High's story of like essentially Chinese investors jumping on the back of a of a tiger and riding it. I wonder if that's really true anymore in the in China Africa space. What do you think? I am a little skeptical. My BS detector was going off a couple times during the interview. Um, she's very bullish on Africa, which I think is very exciting. But at the end of the day. Uh, the levels of Chinese investment in Africa have not been going up. They've been falling over the past 12 to 14 months. Uh, her kind of assessment that those 85 million manufacturing jobs have to go somewhere and Southeast Asia doesn't have enough population to take them, so therefore Africa can benefit, uh, that strikes me as very, very unusual. I mean, I'm in a country now in Vietnam of 94 million people which is part of ASEAN, the Association of Southeast Asian Nations, which is a region that has 600 million people, then take in South Asia with India, Pakistan, and Bangladesh, and you're looking at almost 2 billion people, there's more than enough people here to take in those 85 million Chinese manufacturing jobs. So I think Africa is going to have to compete much more vigorously than I think it's ready for in terms of infrastructure, power supplies. These are the issues you brought up in the interview that she, I felt like, was like, yeah, 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 yeah. So I, I think she was very – she's used to being this kind of very bullish kind of personality on the stage to kind of you – know, almost in a contrarian way. It almost reminded me of listening to Ndambisa Moyo, who is yes. this kind of contrarian to the West. 
And But at the same time, for people like you and I who kind of look at this much more carefully on a daily basis, I thought it was easy to plug holes uh, or poke holes, actually, in some of her arguments. Yeah, I mean, I guess the one, the one kind of counter argument to that would be that – you know, East Africa is very well positioned in terms of exporting both to the Middle East and to Europe, um, and that the the kind of infrastructure and and um, especially transportation infrastructure networks that that is being that are being put in in East Africa um, with Chinese money, you know, kind of does they, they do seem to to open the possibilities of that kind of of East Africa becoming this kind of logistics center. And I mean, we already see it just in terms of of air. Air travel, for example, you know, kind of like the the growth of Etihad um, has made that uh, you know, kind of East Africa a place that where you transit now, you know, kind of on your way to somewhere else, which which it wasn't ten years ago. So you know, I, I can kind of see it developing, but I I was also a little skeptical whether it's going to be developing right now or whether it's developing in ten or fifteen years. Yeah, my final point on it was that also I think her experiences in Ethiopia really highlight the very, very close symbiotic relationship that Addis Ababa and Beijing have with one another. In many ways, uh, Addis is the most similar government style in Africa uh, to the Chinese style, which is an authoritarian, centrally planned economy uh, where civil and political rights are, are not a priority at all. And economic development is the key. And that's what they focus on. So I think China finds a very willing audience with the Ethiopian leadership that they may not find in other parts of Africa. So I think it's difficult to extrapolate from what we see in Ethiopia and then stretch across the continent by virtue of the fact that the political systems are so very, very different. What was your final takeaway and your kind of your the most the biggest impression that the conversation with Helen had? I mean, it was it was in the first place just how incredibly dynamic she is. You know, kind of just she's such a she's such a star. You know, kind of like she has a real she has real star quality. Um, and I, I met her in real life at a conference, and she there she's even more dazzling. You know, kind of like just, she just had the entire audience was just in love with her. Um, and she's you know kind of and I think it's also because she is she's telling a story that people really want to believe. Um, and I think in the case of Ethiopia, Ethiopia is an interesting test case because as you as you say it is politically so similar um, and at the same time it does seem to be like in the same way as China this kind of authoritarian capitalist model does seem to be working right now I mean Ethiopia has great growth rates you know kind of so, so and the skyline is booming and so on I mean it's it's a, it's on the ground. It's a kind of a mixed story. Jacobin magazine recently published this kind of photo essay of like hard times in, in Addis Ababa with lots of people, poor people with with kind of massive skyscrapers in the background. You know, kind of so it, it does. You know, it, it's a it's a mixed story, of course. Um, but at the same time, it's it's is exciting. You know, kind of to see this these kind of growth rates. And I mean, one one really wants it to work. Um, do do we really want the Ethiopian government to to gain more? That's the more difficult question to answer. But you're right. It is a story that people want to believe, not only for Ethiopia, but for the rest of the continent as a whole. Uh, Kobus, excellent interview. Thank you so much. And listen, uh, as we do at the end of every show, if people want to follow what we're doing here at the China Africa Project, what's the best way that they can stay in touch with us? Well, I'm, we're, we're always on our Facebook page. That's facebook.com slash China Africa Project, where we update this constant 24-hour stream of China Africa news items. 
I'm also on Twitter somewhat delinquent recently. People have pointed out I've disappeared from Twitter a little bit. It's because I'm writing very hard in my, at my day job. Um, but I'm on Twitter at Stadenesk, S-T-A-D-E-N-E-S-Q-U-E. And I will get back to you maybe a little bit later. And you can find me over at Twitter at E-O-Lander, E-O-L-A-N-D-E-R. I also wanted to point out to our friends who are on LinkedIn uh, we're, we've now been kind of surfaced in the Pulse Network, so we, I publish all of our podcasts and also our new Q&A uh, article series and our, our question and answer column that we have, which we're going to get to in a little second, on, uh, on LinkedIn as well. And we're getting dozens of comments, thousands of views. And so if you just look for me, Eric Olander, over on LinkedIn, uh, all of our content is there, and there's a fantastic conversation that's going on. So I really, really recommend that. I did mention our new Q&A series. Uh, this is something that Cobus and I are doing every week now. So in addition to the podcast, we're publishing out uh, a question and answer. So a lot of times people have questions about uh, China-Africa relations, but they're a little bit sensitive, maybe politically incorrect, maybe not very nice questions. But this is what people are thinking about. And so they email us. And in the past, what Cobus and I do is we just kind of take our time and email them back uh, and give very, very long answers. And then it occurred to us like, wow, this is great content that everybody else would really appreciate. So one of the things we're doing now is we're taking some of these questions with people's permission, of course, to publish them, not with full names. And we are uh, publishing a, a weekly column on it uh, from Chinese racism to whether why do Chinese think African workers are lazy to Cobus got one the other day about why do the Chinese in Joburg all live in the same community and don't assimilate. These are all the politically incorrect, but things that everybody thinks about kind of questions. And we hopefully give a, a very nuanced, textured answer to each one of them. You can check out the full series over at africa-china.info. You can find it on my LinkedIn page. Also, you can find it on our Twitter pages as well. So we'll be pushing that out every week. And also, we hope to have some partnerships with various news portals in Africa and the U.S. coming very soon. So it'll hopefully be all over the Internet. So we'll be back again very soon with another edition of the China in Africa podcast. Thank you so much for listening.